The views and opinions of the guests of the MeUS podcast do not represent the views and opinions of Consumers Energy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Me, You, Us, a well-being podcast. It's another Well-Being Wednesday here at Consumers Energy, and I'm your host, Bill Krieger. Today, my guest is Peter Meyer. He's a representative from Michigan's 3rd District. So, Representative Meyer, if you'd introduce yourself, we'll get the conversation started. Thank you, Bill. I'm uh, Peter Meyer. I represent Michigan's 3rd District, as you mentioned. I'm a freshman member of Congress uh, and also... Prior to running for office, I had served in the military, was deployed to Iraq with the U.S. Army. I had worked overseas in humanitarian aid in places like the Philippines and then also in conflict analysis in Afghanistan. So kind of had been around the world and and back again and then ran for office. And I'm proud to be serving uh, my first term on the Homeland Security, Foreign Affairs and Science, Space and Technology Committees. So a lot of stuff uh, for a young guy to have accomplished in a very short period of time. Um, it's a, a pretty impressive record. And, you know, as we were talking before the show, I talked about this um, this lifetime of service that many of our representatives, congressmen, senators um, have done a lot of uh, military veterans uh, in that space as well. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, but um, before we kind of get to that, I'd like to know what what was it like uh, growing up as um, Peter Meyer? What kind of things did you do as a kid, and and how did you sort of get interested in the military? I know that you joined uh, shortly after high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you know 9/11 occurred while I was uh, in middle school, um, and even prior to that, I had always. Wanted to join the military. It was kind of a a far off, you know, aspiration as an elementary school kid and as a middle schooler. Um, I don't know when that really clicked, you know, but I I knew that service and and specifically military service was something I wanted to be part of my story and part of you know what I was kind of being developed in and developing you know, as part of that experience. Um, and so initially that meant, you know, going to West Point, um, you know, where I left after, or where I went after high school, um, loved the military, um, was not, was not exactly sure that I wanted a career as a, you know, someone on active duty and B, you know, somebody who was, uh, you know, an officer as intelligence was a little bit more of my passion. Uh, so I ended up transferring out after a year and then enlisting in the reserves who were, you know, I was able to do the intelligence work a bit more concretely. Um, but I think it's that that general feeling of of being in the arena and, and not liking sitting on the sidelines while somebody else is out, you know, um, in in the fight or in the game or, you know, in the in the scrum. Well, and that's interesting that you say that because I uh, actually spent uh, most of my career in the military. I, I retired back in 2010 as uh, an enlisted uh, person. So I was a staff sergeant in the army, but at about 14 years, I decided to go to officer candidate school for the exact same reasons that you kind of uh, switched over to the enlisted corps. Uh, I felt, me personally, I felt like I wasn't able to make those decisions that I felt needed to be made. And so I got my commission uh, prior to uh, going over to Iraq. So uh, it's an interesting uh, kind of, uh, two different uh, outcomes, but really for the same purpose. And, and I think that's something that 
a lot of the civilian community doesn't understand how diverse you know the military is in terms of the roles and responsibilities and realities uh, and something that always kind of cracked me up is uh, you know deploying to Iraq as a as an e5 sergeant doing intelligence work you know I was high enough ranking that if I was dropped on some small little base some little outpost or um, or or kind of joint base with the Iraqis, that if I'm walking around and some sergeant major sees me, I'm high enough ranking that he assumes I know what I'm doing and that I have a reason to be there, but I'm low enough ranking that he didn't really need to know why I was there. You know, so you kind of were above the below, but below the upper, uh, and at the same time carrying a different type of pistol with a different type of patch. You know, my hair is within regs, but like obeying the letter of the regulations, maybe not the spirit, <laughs> you know, so the combination of all of that. But that those type of nuances, I think, are, are um, you're you're laughing at that. But I think a lot of maybe potential civilian listeners you know, wouldn't really understand the uh, the dramatic freedom of expression implied there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even uh, as an officer, I walked around in fear of many a sergeant's major. So. Uh, yeah, for the for the military folks out there, you'll you'll totally get it. And there is kind of that sweet spot, whether it's enlisted or uh, in the officer ranks, where you uh, have a lot of things that you can do and a lot of latitude simply because of where you sit in that hierarchy. So uh, I completely get it. And I, I love what you said about keeping your hair to the uh, letter, if not the spirit. Uh, I know a lot of my uh, peers when we were deployed, um, probably didn't keep their hair cut to either uh, in, in met with the wrath of a sergeant major or two. So you uh, so you did your, you served in Iraq, you came home, um, you finished out your education, but you know, when I uh, look at the things that you've done, you continued your service. I know with uh, groups like uh, Team Rubicon, and uh, some of those things. And here's the interesting thing, like I've heard of Team Rubicon and some friends of mine have done some work with them here stateside, but I did not realize all the work that they do uh, worldwide until I really took a look at their website. So can you talk a little bit about what drew you into Team Rubicon and some of the things you did there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when I came back from Iraq, this was, you know, mid to late 2011. Um, you know, I still had a year to finish up with college but I was on the board of directors of Student Veterans of America, and that was a pretty heady time in the veterans community because you had the large, you know, that kind of uh, the the surge era, you know, cohort um, just coming out of the military or going through school or just graduating from college, you know, so it was a pretty transformational time, you know, as that group that had signed up, you know, on or around 9-11, either were finishing an eight-year enlistment, you know, or were finishing, had finished their enlistment and then were um, rotating out of, of college, right? So there was a pretty big cohort and both on the Student Veterans of America side of the house, the, one of the goals there was to, you know, we succeeded and I'd campaigned to get the post 9-11 GI Bill passed to get those folks who were transitioning out to get them through higher education and on a a pathway to career success. Uh, but then on the general, you know, nonprofit side of the house, it was also how do we take this fantastic resource, this veteran community, and, you know, apply it to a, a notion of continuing service. And I think we see that, you know, Team Rubicon was a great group that I, 
was introduced to roughly a year after it started. And I remember hearing about it and it's like, oh, you take military veterans and, you know, have them respond to natural disasters, kind of drop them in the middle of a place where they can figure their way, you know, through sanity. And I was like, oh, that makes, that is the most perfectly obvious <laughs> and greatest idea. Um, and so had the opportunity to, <sighs> I had, I'd been a volunteer EMT, you know, in college, I obviously um, had, uh, you know, was thanks to some of my military experiences was the type of person you could just kind of plop down in a random place. and I'm going to, you know, be able to figure things out. Um, and so had the opportunity to go with them to, to South Sudan. And I mean, that was as simple as a text message from a buddy that just said, do you want to go to South Sudan? Question mark. And I just said, yes. You know, I was not a real big, I was like, I, I trust that I'll, I will be told whatever I need to know. And if I'm not told it, either I don't need to know it or my job is to figure it out, right? Uh, and so had a great, great experience over there catching malaria um, and then went to uh, the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan in 2013, um, spent some time in Hurricane Sandy when it hit in 2012. Uh, you know, so it was just a really exciting time to be at, at the at the kind of at the ground level where each mission ended up being the biggest response they had done to date. You know, the Philippines was the largest international response, you know, I think that the team Rubicon had done since Haiti, you know, which was their first mission. Hurricane Sandy was the largest domestic response they had done since Joplin, which was, you know, their first major domestic response. So it was a really exciting moment to be in this community that was just kind of finding its sea legs, uh, but also to kind of show up in a random, you know, disaster struck part of the world and realize like, oh, here are all my friends. <laughs> you know, so it was a, kind of a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing in the midst of tragedy. Well, and you, you know, you talk about responding to uh, some of these uh, natural disasters. And, you know, I recall uh, responding to Hurricane Katrina uh, getting in a Humvee and driving from Michigan down to Biloxi, Mississippi the day after. And one of the things uh, is when you get there, you know, I took some pictures and and you really can't describe what you see. Did you really find that true? Because when I go back and look at pictures of these disasters that I've responded to, um, the pictures don't even do it justice. Like you almost have to to be there to really grasp what's happened. I, the... You know, there's something about the atmospherics of a place, kind of how it feels, that is really irreplaceable. Um, and that's setting aside the obvious, which is, you know, especially in a disaster zone, um, you know, I mentioned running into my friends in places, you know, and then I, I also at the same time realized, wow, you guys smell terrible because you haven't had a shower in two weeks, you know. So there, there's the, the, the pungency, you know, of a locale uh, oftentimes doesn't translate in a photograph. You know, but just especially getting a getting a sense. I mentioned that atmospherics, getting a sense of of the the tension, of of the hope, of the fear. You know, kind of the emotions of a place. I think are really critical, but very easily lost. You know, in a photograph that reduces things down, and and I think of you know places that. I mean, I've spent a little bit of time in Ukraine uh, and actually was spent 4th of July 2015, I think, in Mariupol, 
um, which was after some of the fighting occurred, but it was you know, most of the fighting was occurring a couple of kilometers to the east. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think I have a decent understanding and could situate, you know, what the context is as best as somebody who has never been there. Because at least I've been there, even though I, I have not been there in anything bordering on the current cataclysm, you know, but that having been said, someone who spent one minute on the ground is going to have an infinitely better understanding of that dynamic of that, that moment and that reality than I ever would, you know, because I haven't, I, I, I maybe have spent a week there, you know, but not the, the there that is right now. Right. Maybe that's a little too ethereal, but there's no replacing kind of being seeing, um, smelling, hearing, feeling um, all of those different, you know, kind of sensory components of a, of a moment. Well, in, in two, the other thing a photograph I don't think captures is uh, how surprising people are. I know uh, I, I remember, you know, vividly being right down at the, the beachfront in Biloxi and these houses are completely wiped out if they're, if they're there at all. And uh, this guy came out of his house. He had on a pair of ripped up shorts, no shirt. And again, you could tell he probably hadn't showered in, in at least a few days. And he came out to ask us what he could do for us. And, and to me, that yeah. really kind of brought some hope around the human condition. And I find that when I respond to things, even uh, my combat time in Iraq, people surprised me at how they really came together and reacted. Do you find that as well? I do. Um, you know, I think that's when you really see what a community is made of and, and communities that have some underlying trust. You know, that becomes a very easy thing to fall back on. Um, communities that maybe are, are lacking that, you know, those fissures in that that kind of fraying of, of, of social fabric is, is very evident. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, overwhelmed, you know, on some of those disaster response missions, you know, how many people, you know, were, you, you just kind of saw some of the best um, come out of folks. And I think that's always been a, a wonderful thing to, to see and then kind of have affirmed, you know, that inherent goodness there. Yes. And sometimes I think that's, that's hard to see. So, you know, as we talk through the things that you've done in this lifetime of service, I, I've got to ask what drew you uh, to uh, becoming a, a, a representative in, in going to Washington? I mean, to me, that's an extension of service, but what drew you to that after all of these other things that you've done? That, that is a, a very logical question that I used to have a very good answer for that now I need to rack my brain <laughs> uh, excuse me and remember uh, no I, I had I you know having spent close to three years between Iraq and Afghanistan you know as both a combatant and a um, and a non-combatant you know living inside the T walls and living you know out on the economy you know I really wanted that perspective to be something that was, uh, represented, frankly, in, in Congress. And, and I think one of my frustrations has been that all too often it feels like that isn't represented, that the uh, that within, within Congress there oftentimes isn't that appreciation that what the government does and what the government doesn't do, you know, either through action or inaction, you know, lives are going to hang in the balance. And so I wanted to bring the gravity of that perspective 
you know, to that office and, and also, um, you know, stepping aside from the foreign policy side of the house or just the maybe mortal consequence side of the house. I wanted to bring a longer term orientation to a lot of our decision making, uh, because the other frustration that I had is it seemed to be we're barely able to solve you know, well, in the military, right? You have your 50 meter targets, you have your 100 meter targets, you have your 200 meter targets, your 300 meter targets. You know, you, you got to hit the 50 meter targets because those are the things that are going to run up and, and stab you if you don't get them and drop them. You know, but you also can't forget about the 200 meter, or the 300 meter, because those are the ones that are going to come and be the 50 meter if you don't drop them soon too. And so we spend all of our time focusing on these 50 meter targets, always reacting and not doing the groundwork so that we don't have to worry about them because we've taken care of them when they were at that 300 or 200 meter stage. Well, that's great perspective. And I like something else you said too, is that the decisions that get made by other people impact many, many, many people, especially true in Washington, but it sounds like maybe even a lesson learned in the military. I know that uh, when I made those hard decisions as a commander, uh, my enlisted experience uh, taught me to think about the consequences of those decisions and try and make the decisions based on that. And it sounds like maybe you brought some of that into Congress as well. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that's, I think, been a pretty big focus is just wanting to have some of that be represented. And so you talked a little bit, too. I want to go back. You talked a bit about uh, getting the post 9-11 GI Bill passed. Uh, I actually administer our GI Bill program here at Consumers Energy uh, because our apprentices are uh, sometimes eligible to use their GI Bill benefits. In fact, I think we're up to about 45 people using those benefits. And I use them myself. I have a master's degree thanks to uh, some of that work. But can you talk briefly about maybe some of the other things that are going on in Washington to help our uh, veterans? Yeah, you know, I, you mentioned, obviously, that the GI Bill was a massive push, you know, in that 2007-2008 timeframe. So that returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan had comparable education benefits as the post-World War II generation had. Uh, or as the World War II generation had when they were returning from from the Atlantic or Pacific theaters, so the we we succeeded there, and and there's been some incremental progress, you know, since that very transformational legislation. Um, but frankly, where a lot of our focus has been in the in recent years has been around toxic exposure uh, and some of the respiratory ailments associated with burn pits. Um, you know, we're you know, you can you can kind of draw. You know, an issue out of the hat and, and the VA system probably has it, you know, but when it comes to being um, focused on what we need to do in order to uh, provide for our veterans, you know, it's a bit of a, a whack-a-mole where we want to be making sure that on the, the positive end that we're providing what needs to be provided and then also covering all of the unanticipated issues that arise. And obviously when it comes to, you know, what is frankly the post 9-11 equivalent to Agent Orange, which is, you know, burn pits and that broader sense of toxic exposure, uh, that we're doing the identification, that we're getting the presumptive coverage, you know, that we're making sure that those service related ailments are being viewed as such. And that, you know, members of the military who, you know, served overseas and, and were exposed to these, that they are getting the appropriate care and treatment. You know, last year I attended the VFW National Conference. I'm also a member of the National Guard Association of the United States. And they really talk about uh, burn pit and some other things that are impacting our veterans. And one of the things that they bring up uh, quite frequently 
is that when we are getting ready to go into war or do some sort of operation in another country, we look at the the overall cost of, of doing that, right? You hear a lot of talk about what it costs uh, to be in Iraq or what it costs to be in Afghanistan and so on. Um, but they make this argument that we don't talk about what the cost is when we come back and that somehow we should factor that in when we're thinking about sending our young men and women, just like we were, uh, over into these areas. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, actually, <laughs> I'm, I was the uh, the co-lead on uh, the Republican side of a kind of cost of war uh, piece of legislation, which sought to do just that, which is, you know, let's have a running tally of all of these expenses. Um, because it's important to remember, I think the last civil war pension was just, was, you know, stopped being paid out a couple of years ago. You know, it was, uh, um, which is bizarre to, to think how long, you know, the, the the direct financial costs of some of our conflicts are, right? I mean, in this case, it was a, a very old, old, you know, um, Civil War veteran who, you know, in his 80s or 90s married a very, very young woman, you know, who lived very long, you know, but over that, that kind of span, you see, like, we are, we were still paying that pension um, for somebody who served, you know, 160 years ago, you know, so you can imagine, you know, what legacy costs will still be with us, you know, from the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that's something that we should be very mindful of prior to, you know, any conflict that we are entering. I, I couldn't agree more. So th thank you for answering that question for me. Um, there's two more things I'd like to, to cover with you uh, before we go. I know we're coming up on time here. Uh, the first one uh, is shifting gears a little bit. I, I read this article about you uh, not liking breakfast. And I think the, the exact quote was right around, you are militant about not liking breakfast. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I don't think breakfast is a very good uh, meal category. I, I fundamentally do not understand the idea that breakfast for dinner is some type of a treat. Um, if anything, it feels like a, a scam. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, I think breakfast, and, and when I'm thinking of breakfast, there's a lot of individual components of breakfast that I enjoy at many times of the day, right? Uh, cereal, no issue with cereal. Love cereal. You know, special K checks. Great. Um, I actually really like eggs in, uh, you know, like a cocktail on my burger. Right. There's a lot of great ways that an egg can be presented. But one of the challenges is breakfast is either it's either salty, greasy or cheesy. Right. That's kind of all. But you only get one or two of those. So it's a very limited flavor profile. And it's, I think this, this, I think very patronizing idea that your stomach can only take, you know, so little early on in the day. And I think that just gives our, our miraculous bodies short shrift, to be honest. Well, and I think salty, cheesy, and greasy sometimes is very appealing, but I, I, I get what you're saying <laughs> completely. You need more. You need the umami, <laughs> right? You need like the, the meat. You need, you need something when even like the meats that you have are either you know salty or greasy right they're, they're never the actual flavor of the meat you know it's it's just a salty or a greasy flavor no one's like even even when like a steak is served for breakfast it's not a good steak it's a terrible steak it's like the the steak that you you're too embarrassed to serve at dinner you know so i don't i just i don't i think the whole thing's a racket 
<laughs> well, I can appreciate that. I have to be honest. For breakfast, I am a, a smoothie guy. I throw a bunch of spinach and some fruit into a blender, and and that's my because I think breakfast meats are uh, meat in name only. <laughs> I'm not sure that even really eat. So, um, thanks for entertaining that question. It really. I read it and I kind of chuckled, so I had to ask. Uh, but as I said, we are coming up on time and I want to be respectful of your schedule as well. Uh, but before we go, uh, first, let me thank you so much for being on and taking the time out to do this with us. Uh, and secondly, what would you like to leave the audience with? What would you like our audience to take away from our conversation today? I think one of the important things um, for the audience is there's no, um, or at least one, one life lesson that I've tried to apply that I think is, is something a lot of folks could, could stand to hear is, you know, maybe have a plan, but be ready to discard that plan. You know, if, if life throws you something more interesting, you know, and, and that, that general sense of, um, you know, having, having a trajectory, having a direction, but not being so consumed by fidelity to that path um, that you disregard opportunities as they come along. You know, I, I think back to all of the experiences that came about only because, you know, that text message that said, you want to go to South Sudan? If I would have said no, you know, how different my life would have been, you know, or if I, I didn't end up transferring out of West Point and then didn't end up going to Iraq before my class would have gone. If I, you know, you can't know, but I think of all of those scenarios and, you know, this is the cliche advice, but I'd rather regret the things, you know, I did than the things I didn't do. But at the same time, you know, I think we're, we live in a very unpredictable and kind of nonlinear moment. And it, I think it's beneficial to approach that in a slightly unpredictable and, you know, emphatically nonlinear way uh, to, to kind of seize the opportunities that present themselves rather than, you know, kind of let, let, let that call at the door go unanswered. Well, and I, and I think that really speaks to one of those lessons in the military, right? Um, no plan survives the first shot fired, but you have to have a plan. Uh, and also, you know, that text message about going to Sudan uh, strikes me about some of the things I've done with some of my friends. And it uh, was really summed up, I think, greatly by Robert Frost when he talks about taking that that road less traveled, uh, right? We have this idea where we want to go, but it's always great to uh, check out some other things because great things may come from it, uh, as you know, evidenced in your in your life. So, again, uh, Congressman Meyer, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, taking the time out to talk with uh, me in the audience, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Thank you to the audience for listening in today. The Me, You, Us podcast is proudly sponsored by Consumers Energy, leaving Michigan better than we found it. Remember, you can find the Me, You, Us podcast on all major podcasting platforms. So be sure to go out, find us, and subscribe. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please contact the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's one 800 273-8255. If you are a veteran or know a veteran who is in crisis, you can call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 for the Veterans Crisis Line. And remember to tune in every Wednesday 
as we talk about the things that impact your personal well-being.